Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what's good, guys? We're back with another pod, and today we have a three-man pod for you guys. With me, I have AC. What's up, guys? And we got Aswi. Howdy how. So, we have to say it because it's incredibly important. Today is the one-year anniversary of the great Kobe Bryant's death. Uh, we want to give a quick shout out and just, you know, let everyone know that our thoughts and prayers are still with uh, the Bryant family. And it's just an extremely tragic event for all NBA fans across the world. Uh, guys, your thoughts? Yeah, honestly, uh, prior to his passing, I-, I must admit I wasn't the biggest Kobe fan. But after he passed, I realized that talent of that level comes every generation. And we were all lucky to have witnessed what he did not just on the court, but also off it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the sad thing about Kobe Bryant's passing is that it, it felt like he had so much more left to give the world beyond his basketball playing career. I mean, we all know what he did on the court, right? His incredible footwork, the fundamentals, the shot making, the confidence. And he was an icon in every sense of the word. But I mean, you're talking about a guy who also, after that, ended up winning an Oscar. He won an Emmy, I mean, come on, like what more would this guy have done? And also, I, he was becoming a mentor to a whole other generation, almost in a way that he only really started to do at the end of his playing career. So uh, it's really a shame to see him go. I don't, our co host Ranga made, made a point once that, uh, you know, he always thought that Kobe would be somebody that, you know, would be on TV for a long time. He could tell his kids about it. And it's really a tragedy that that didn't happen. Um, I, and I do want to say that we will have a Kobe episode. There's so much to talk about his legacy, you know, how, how great he was, how he compares. But even setting all that aside, just what made him a unique player and and, and a legend for his time. Yeah, no doubt. And and for me, too, uh, he was a big reason why I got into basketball. Um, there was a point in time when, when I first started watching, I actually kind of rooted against Kobe because I was sort of into the Celtics a little bit and I wanted them to like be Kobe during that time uh but i i really wanted to like model a lot of my game after him being able to like shoot off the dribble uh do a lot of things like that when i played basketball um i don't know just it's extremely surreal i go back every now and then to look at the highlights of uh his many highlights really uh, especially his 81 point performance against my raptors uh one of the greatest scoring performances you'll ever see uh just a real real tragedy and again he gave so much of the game, right? And a lot of guys who are our favorite players in today's game, they're going to tell you that that was their favorite player, Kobe Bryant. So I don't know. He had such a big impact both on and off the court, like you guys said. Just really tragic. One last thing I do want to say about Kobe that I I really miss about what he brought was that's a guy that if you bought a ticket to see Kobe Bryant play, he was going to play if he had a broken finger. He was going to play... If he had, you know, a dislocated elbow, like whatever the hell his injury was, he was playing, he was playing hard. He was giving it his all for every single regular season game. There was no coasting. There was no load management. None of that. I mean, he's almost the last of that breed of player. And I, and I do miss that. I mean, as a fan of someone like that, like Iverson, uh, that's something I, I, too, have always respected about Kobe. Right. And just to reiterate again, we will have a Kobe episode. Uh, We wanted to really take our time and do that properly with potentially some guests who would have more insight on Kobe. And our co-host Nissal is a huge Kobe fan, so he definitely needs to be here for that. Um, But for today's episode, we're actually going to talk about COVID and how it's led to a very odd season. 
But before we start, I do want to give Oswe a little bit of credit. In our yearbook superlative episode, our most likely to episode, he was right in who we predicted of who would be the most likely player in the league to start a brawl. He said it would be James Johnson. And lo and behold, James Johnson was the first player in the NBA to start a brawl and he even got suspended for it. Clap it up. Clap it up. <laughs> Call me Street Dramas. <laughs> oh, God. Well, yeah. <laughs> I can't even mock him because in that same episode, he got another prediction, right? And this is kind of relevant to our episode today. He predicted that Michael Porter Jr. will be the first player to break COVID protocol. And also, just to recap, why exactly did you make that prediction? I mean, honestly, this is probably the easiest prediction to make. This guy literally said that there's definitely an agenda behind coronavirus and that it's overblown, in quote, to scare people into being controlled. And he said that it would be crazy if vaccinations are required to travel. Mind you, this is also the same guy who claims to have never been vaccinated in his life. In any case, it was obvious that this guy was going to have COVID. And is it true reports are that he might have even gotten it twice now? Yeah, that is the speculation that he not only caught it once, but actually twice. So I guess he uh, realized that there maybe isn't that much of an agenda behind coronavirus and it's actually a disease. Yeah, I mean, again, if he did get it twice, one, that that's an achievement in and of itself. Only Michael Porter Jr. could can, can come up with. But uh, I, I don't know, like uh, it wouldn't surprise me to say the least, to be honest with you guys. Though we should note that he is officially back from his uh, stay away from COVID. And um, he is actually playing pretty decently well now. So hopefully he's fully recovered. Yeah, but it's more than just Michael Porter Jr. I feel like a lot of teams have been missing games. In In total, 22 games have been postponed due to COVID. And the restrictions are even more strict now than they were before. Think about this for a visiting team. Visiting players and team staff are prohibited from leaving except for team activities or emergencies. They're barred from interacting with non-team guests. Face masks must be worn at all times on the bench and in the locker room. Pre- and post-game interactions are limited only to elbow and fist bumps. Now for visiting teams, massages and physical therapy at hotels are to occur in a ballroom or some other type of large open space. And players cannot arrive at the arena more than three hours before tip-off. Yeah, there's definitely a ton of restrictions now. And I do think the league is sort of going in a good direction with all this. Um, whether the players will outright fully follow with that, I'm, I'm not too sure. Like, even just yesterday uh, at the Lakers game, right, there was this really cool exchange between LeBron and Kevin Love. And they were doing their old handshakes. And it's like, as much as you want to enforce, like this sort of like protection and all these protocols, you know, the players, it kind of takes away from their own individuality in some sense. And I know that for them, that's something they really cherish. So it's going to be hard to really like stay true to all the players sort of following protocol, you know? Yeah. But look, there's two choices. There's individuality or there's sitting out because you have COVID or something like that. There's a reason that these, protocols are in place, right? And I get it. When you're playing basketball, your bodies are up against each other. So yes, it doesn't make a difference in theory if you give them a hug after the game or you go through your whole motions with your handshake. But the idea is it's it's just logical. Why increase the amount of exposure? Yes, you've, you've had a certain amount of 
unavoidable exposure there. But whatever little you can do outside of that mandatory period where you are exposed, like why just why add to that risk? I, I just don't get it. Let me let me put this into perspective. Think about how the Sixers are doing this year, right? Seth Curry missed seven games, and I thought, oh my god, our season's done for. Tobias Harris missed a bunch of games. Shake Milton, Matisse, Ben, Embiid, they've all seen time off because of COVID. But somehow they're still number one in the East, and I feel like, yes, Embiid's been dominant, but the Heat missed one game altogether, and everyone from Bam to Hero to Butler have been out for multiple games. Look at the Celtics. They've missed three games altogether with even Tatum getting COVID. So let me ask you, is the individuality important compared to actually being available to play and win games in a shortened season? And I, I think it's a fair point, right? Like, uh, obviously, you're, you're right in the sense that, yes, if you can limit the spread, why not limit it? But in that sense, it just makes me think, like, why even have basketball games to begin with if if the whole purpose of it is for like, basketball is a game of contact, right? And no matter how much you try to limit small things like that, like, you're better off just not having any games to begin with in that sense. And that's sort of the perspective that I come in from from it. Like, in my opinion, it's like, okay, good. Like, yeah, the league is trying to limit as much as they can, but it almost feels like they're being far too overbearing with what it is they're trying to limit. And I just don't, like, see a real point to it. The counterpoint to saying, well, why, like, why does it matter if they're boxing out each other and they're playing a full contact sport whereas at the end of the game, they can only just dap up slightly. It's about developing that subconscious, that mindfulness to adhere to these things. Yes, obviously at that point, they've already been exposed to each other. But in enforcing these rules, they're trying to instill a level of mindfulness and awareness that in almost every other circumstance other than when they're literally against each other's bodies fighting for a ball, that they need to adhere to this. That's the point of why they're making it. It's it's right. not a it's not a lost point because of that. No, it's no, like yeah. saying it's it's like saying, well, if if my cousin comes over and is wearing a mask the whole time, do, does it make sense if my cousin's going to take off his mask when they eat? Well, yes, you still want to have that mask. You're just limiting the amount of exposure. That's the point. Yeah, that's sweet. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I understand that you're, you're coming from the point of, of principle. And I, I do think that it's important to set that precedent for for players to you know follow in what should be like good role model type behavior, right? Like you're going to have young kids watching this sort of thing and they need to see that their players, people that they look up to are following the correct protocols and they're doing the right things to ensure that you know, in theory, the virus doesn't doesn't spread. Right. So I, I, I get that. Um, I, I just don't think that like fr- from looking at it, it's just like it doesn't seem effective. Right. Like even if in principle, it, it's the correct thing to do. But uh, no, you make good points. Well, Anushan, I, I think the case of the Wizards is definitely worth observing. So, you know, a lot of teams have had people out because of COVID protocol, which often means that maybe somebody they know has been exposed. So it's been it's been preventative. But then the Wizards had seven players who all were diagnosed with COVID at around the exact same time. And contact tracing showed that all those players contracted COVID from various opponents on the court, which is kind of alarming, right? So it does show that even on the court, you can get it from someone. And so to the extent that you can limit that as much as possible, 
I think probably we should do that. Yeah, no, AC, uh, definitely. I mean, it's it's true, right? Like, you want your players to play, right? And if you can do things to prevent it, then it's the right thing to follow. Well, the other thing to consider is, you know, we're about a quarter of the season in, and there are already so many postponed games. 22 is, as we said. And some teams have missed a lot more than others. And I'm actually starting to wonder now, guys, if it's even realistic if we can make up those lost games. Now, the NBA was pretty wise to schedule only half a season which allowed it to potentially try to fit all those postponed games in. But if it keeps at this rate, there might just be too many games. And the other thing that we have to remember is the Olympics are in late July, and the NBA does not want to compete against the Olympics uh, for the same reason that they didn't want to compete against the NFL this year, right? Like they, do, they want to have the summer mostly to themselves and maybe just the NHL to deal with. So that means that you can't postpone stuff too far down the road. The other thing is in the most recent baseball season teams weren't able to play the same amount of games because of covid related cancellations what the mlb did was they decided the standings based on winning percentage so i think that could easily happen here in the nba as well wait so do you mean to say that a team like i don't know the lakers can play 72 games in a season and then you'll have i don't know the celtics playing 60 i think that that's not only possible that it's likely i don't know if it's gonna be the lakers and the celtics necessarily although the lakers have only had really just alex caruso out for covid protocol where some teams have had multiple players out with actual covid but yeah like if a team misses eight or nine games and those games aren't made up there, there could be a huge disparity here and remember with a shortened season every game has that much more weight now right so like a team that's only playing 63 games Losing a couple of games here and there might completely affect their them their standing in the playoff race or even knock them out of the playoffs altogether. For sure. When you think about this shortened schedule, right? What they did was they increased back to backs, but not by a massive margin. They cut back on longer stretches with no games. So there are no more two game weeks. The vast majority of teams play three to four games per week, which from an injury standpoint, since there's less built-in rest, there could be more injuries, mainly soft tissue ones. But think about it like this. If you're saying that a team, their playoff standing or even missing the playoffs would be based on their win percentage, then if you take into account not just the fact that they're missing some games, but also that the availability of those players is seemingly random each loss feels a lot more impactful imagine if katie gets down with covid and is out for an extended period of time aside from the health implications of it that could be the difference of the nets making it to the playoffs the nets having a high seed a low seed or missing it altogether. and that is an element of randomness that i can't imagine teams are very comfortable with but honestly, this could be part of a long-term plan to revamp the regular season. A shorter season with things like a mid-season tournament or something to incentivize team owners. If this model works with this truncated season and aside from COVID, players respond well to it, we might be seeing the basis of what a future regular season might look like. I would like that to be the case, but I feel like there's too much revenue at stake those extra 10 missing games. I know I personally believe that there is a, a sort of a happy point where this season could be shortened to where you could charge customers more to make up the revenue difference and charge TV networks more. But as the way everything I've read about the leagues, you know, and, and the finances say that they really believe in this 82 games and getting 41 home games worth of gate money and, you know, local TV deals are contracted out that way. So it's not something that's going to change anytime soon. 
However, there is one change this season that I do think could actually be a long-term change, and that is having back-to-backs against the same team. Now, this is something the baseball has done for a long time, right? So like, you know, Oswin and I are from near the New York area. There's always like the Subway Series where the Yankees play the Mets and or you'll have the Yankees play the Red Sox and everyone gets excited for following baseball that week. You know, it's, it's sort of rivals. And the, the biggest positive of this is it just reduces the wear and tear, right? So if, if you're facing the same team twice, you're, you're cutting out trips later on. And there's definitely some other positives too, right? Because like when both teams are healthy and competing, they kind of become like little mini playoff series. I've really enjoyed that this season so far. Like you get a chippiness in, in, in these games that you don't regularly see in the regular season at least because guys just don't want to get punked two games in a row, right? Like if a guy dropped 40 on them game one, they're going to foul him hard the next game. And the other thing is, you just see like some game-to-game adjustments, which you never really see until the playoffs because, you know, like if, if a, a team conceded a ton of threes, well, they're going to change their scheme a little bit to, to reduce threes. Or, or if a particular player killed them, they might try to double them or trap them in the next game. And it also has a little bit of a positive effect, in my opinion, of getting rid of some of these gimmick strategies and junk defenses we see that, you know, teams like the Bucks, in my opinion, use some of like in previous years, who is a bit of a gimmick defense. I don't know if it's a gimmick defense, but they use a, a, a scheme that you don't normally see. And then, of course, in the playoffs, everyone just, you know, schemes all the way around it. You know, the Rockets last year were definitely like a gimmick team, which I feel like they, that wouldn't work so well this year when teams would have time to plan against it. Yeah, I totally agree with that point about how teams can make good adjustments in like a, that sort of like mini series in that back to back. So like that best of two sort of thing. Like, I, I mean, I'll give an example with uh, the Raptors and the Pacers. And, and so the first game that we played against the, the Pacers this season, we absolutely I wouldn't say we absolutely destroyed them, but we made life a living hell for them. They shot extremely poorly from three and we were giving them all, all those open looks and we were doing our classic strategy of like the late rotation and the pre-rotation as well and come game two their coach uh, Nate Bjorgen he, he made some really good adjustments during that game and all of a sudden you have Malcolm Brogdon scoring an easy 30 you have guys like Miles Turner just abusing the interior right so I, I feel like it gives a lot of teams a good chance to sort of make a uh, a, a good run against the opposition that they're facing and I really feel that it shows a lot more of what the coaches are capable of doing. And I think it's really, really cool to see. Now, the downside of having back-to-backs against the same team is that if a team has a slew of injuries or people out for COVID and this weird COVID-impacted season, they could just totally lose the season series to an opponent that they would otherwise have a good chance of beating or maybe be favored against. And you're seeing this with the Miami Heat, who have been just banged up the entire season. And like they faced the Sixers twice, heavily injured both times, and they lost twice. And the same thing happened against the Nets just recently, though they competed in that first game and somehow dropped 124 points without Jimmy Butler or Tyler Hero. They did, again, lost twice to the Nets. And that's going to have an impact uh, for the Heat because those are two teams that they are competing against for uh, playoff positions. So overall, guys, is this a change that you'd like to see permanently or something that you'd like them to go back to the normal way? I'm talking specifically here about the back-to-backs against the same team. Personally, I love it. And anything to make the regular season more interesting to watch. And when you have coaches making adjustments, players getting at it a little bit more, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, um, I agree with Aswi. Uh, I I think it is kind of like a double-edged sword because like while there is the point like you get to see two like good teams duke it out in like 
you know, a best of uh, two, obviously. But then you have like those other other situations where you have like, a really good team and honestly a trash team, and then they get to play each other twice, right? So it, it leaves room for like a lot of excitement, but also like some letdowns as well. Well, one thing you got to consider, Anushan, is you think a good team is going to go all out on two of those three games? I think at least one of those games, the lesser team would really come and ball out. And it's like the same thing if you watch Summer League or G League, right? Intense basketball is always good basketball. And these are professionals. These aren't a bunch of scrubs, right? Even a bad team on a good night will be a lot of fun to watch. And if they have three nights against the reigning champions or the Eastern Conference champion, I I feel like they'd elevate their level of play. So it's not as bad as you might think. To Oswee's point, I think it's very hard to defeat any NBA team twice, like even even the bottom feeder teams. So that almost adds a level where like the good teams have to be prepared to really bring it twice. Because, you know, maybe one time they went on talent and the next time they're a little bit flat, they could end up losing, right? So, and it also has the situation where sometimes the, the underdog team actually could win twice. That's a complete embarrassment for the favorite. And you saw that over the weekend with the Nets surprisingly losing twice to the Cavs in two incredible games, which I think made everyone love, everyone outside of Brooklyn Nets fans love the Cleveland Cavaliers and kind of fall in love with that squad they got there. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. Uh, again, we have to remember that both those teams were both relatively healthy with, in terms of their COVID protocol stuff. Well, besides the Cavs not having Garland at the time. But there are situations where like a really good team, as we know, the Miami Heat, we know what they're about, right? But they're doing awful this season. Why? Because as AC alluded to earlier, like they just don't have healthy bodies available. Jimmy Butler is just not there to play. Tyler Hero is not there to play, right? So you're going to have situations like that where you do have a really good team and they're not able to find their footing because they just don't have the people available to win games. Yeah, I think it's this strange thing where although this new back-to-back against the same team thing was only introduced in this season with COVID, it actually be better in a non-COVID season because you need people to actually be there for this to work. Because one of the other side effects of this that we haven't talked about yet is it's leading to very lopsided schedules. So obviously the whole schedule hasn't been announced, but the schedules are not going to be even in the first place, even if everyone plays all the schedules because we're only up 72 games. But on top of that, at any given point, like it, you look at some of the teams who they've played like the same like six bad teams twice and then other teams have played like the same good teams over and over again the Warriors for instance have played like a murderous row of opponents over and over again whereas other teams have just feasted on cake schedules so it does make it a little bit difficult to kind of assess where these various teams stand but overall personally I think that this is a good change in a normal season it'll, it'll reduce wear and tear and just as also we said it just bring excitement to the game which is what we really need in the NBA do you feel like the culmination of all of this with COVID absences and a shortened schedule, you think it would reduce the likelihood of teams tanking this season? Oh, that's a great point. And I actually think that's pretty likely because first of all, like you said, the combination of just like, even good teams having multiple absences and a shortened schedule in general, it gives a chance for the relatively poor teams that are kind of punching above their weights to actually make the playoffs. And this is especially true this season where we have a, a play-in tournament, right? So you don't need to be in the top eight of your conference. You just need to be in the top 10 to have a chance to get into the playoffs. That means that teams like the Knicks and the Cavs, who might have otherwise been sellers or likely candidates to buy out players, like they have every incentive to try to compete throughout the season, which I think will lead to less tanking. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen it, right? Like, the Cavs and the Knicks especially are two extremely surprising teams this season. And honestly, they've really deserved all their merit. Like, they've played very hard given their circumstances. They've also suffered from COVID protocol issues and just injuries in general. So it's not like they're teams that haven't been going through the same struggles as everyone else, right? So, you know, credit to them and, you know, they deserve their due diligence, right? Hold on, that's me uh, taking care of my erection with you speaking so positively about the next. <laughs> oh God, oh God. disgusting! <laughs> wow, are, are are Knicks fans that desperate that even talking about them nicely? <laughs> yeah, we've been starred for multiple decades, man. Come on now, yeah. uh, the once in a lifetime yes. compliment. <laughs> well. I have to ask you guys, if you think about how COVID is spreading in this country and how it's been impacting the NBA so far, do you feel like there's a chance of the playoffs going to be in the bubble? Because honestly, I think it's necessary, especially if Adam Silver continues to be soft on meeting out punishment for violating protocol. But the problem is a number of stars have expressed that they oppose another bubble. LeBron himself has said that he has PTSD from being so isolated there. Maybe there's some type of happy medium where they can have the bubble, but I don't know, learn from the mistakes of the last one so that it's a little bit more agreeable to the players. Well, I think it's interesting to note that the NBA has not ruled out the possibility of having a bubble, at least for the final two rounds. And the reality is the NBA simply can't afford to let something like a team-wide COVID outbreak, like what's happened to the Washington Wizards, affect the outcome of a conference finals or an NBA finals. Imagine if like the Nets are in the finals and they face in the Clippers and the Clippers get a you know COVID outbreak and the Nets win the championship. They know it'll make it'll just be so horrible, right? So if that's what you know is at stake, I, I think that they're going to try to stop that from happening. And again, I, I mentioned this before, they also can't allow too many delays just for the simple reason of the Summer Olympics, which start at the end of July. So there's like a a hard end date to which they need the playoffs to end by. Now, that being said, I really, really hope that we have fans back in the playoffs, if not full stadiums, we have some at least, you know, maybe quarter stadium or something. We need that atmosphere back. We need the playoffs don't feel the same to me in the bubble. Uh, You know, like about like Anthony Davis hitting that game winning shot that he hit last year. Imagine that was the Staples Center, right? Or some of them, the big plays that were made by various stars across you know, the playoffs last year, just to have it with actual fans there. That's what we, we're all hoping happens. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I agree with that. I, I do think that we definitely <laughs> would love to see stadiums being filled with their respective fans and you know, things can sort of, sort of start going back to normal. If there is a bubble, I, I do think that the NBA did a fantastic job last year when it came to a bubble and all the protocols that players had to follow and I think Oswe does make a good point even from earlier in our in our pod where you know players need to start kind of taking this seriously and they need to start abiding by the rules right like and if that doesn't happen and there's more cases like this more postponed games then it's very likely we're going to see a bubble and while you know the fan in me doesn't want to see it I also do think that the NBA has shown a lot of success with the things that they've done with last season. So I would be sort of okay with it, but hopefully it doesn't have to come to that. I mean, let's be honest. If they aren't taking COVID protocol seriously, and if Adam Silver continues to be a baby about suspending players for breaking protocol and putting people in danger, 
a bubble is necessary. So if the players really want to avoid a bubble, they need to start adhering to the COVID protocols without complaining. I just don't see how you can complain about COVID protocols being too strict or whatever, and then expecting to get through this global pandemic where you're traveling to play basketball. Like it just you can't have the cake and eat it. Honestly. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. The exact same thing. Like you're going to get a bubble. That's it's going to happen the way things are projecting. Like AC said earlier, you know, it'd be really nice for teams to have fans. And there are already some teams that have given the okay to have fans in the arena. So these teams are the Atlanta Hawks, Cleveland Cavaliers, Houston Rockets, Indiana Pacers, Memphis Grizzlies, which in some way is kind of ironic since they've had a huge number of their games postponed. Uh, the Miami Heat, New Orleans Pelicans, Orlando Magic, and the Utah Jazz. It, it leads to this question about the impact of empty arenas and how they can contribute to blowouts. What, what are your guys' thoughts? It's as simple as no fans equals no energy to help you get back in the game. Yeah, I think the lack of fans has had a huge impact on the amount of blowouts we've seen this season. Like It's particularly impacted home teams who don't have that energy boost from the crowd or frankly, the crowd influencing refs. It's led this season to the lowest home winning percentage in NBA history. Wow. Yeah, And, and it, you know, it's kind of debunked that old myth that it's really travel that was the biggest reason why road teams were at a disadvantage. It looks like it's really just having fans there. And I just even watching it, I, I feel the abs- their absence. And it's crazy. Whenever I watch a team like the Cavs play or the Jazz, like there were 300 fans the other night in, in one of these games. And it still felt like cool to hear some noise that didn't sound like a fake piped in noise so it obviously is affecting the home crowds not to have them but i actually think it also affects road teams sometimes like booing and jeering can motivate players and make teams rally right like just look what happened the other night when a Cavs executive decided to piss off lebron at the end of the third quarter and lebron just went off he scores 21 points in the fourth quarter making one absurd shot after another i'm talking 35 foot three pointers turnaround fadeaways every time staring at whoever this poor executive was and by the way as an aside you think a Cavs executive should know a little bit better than to piss off this man having seen him do this down that's so funny i mean this is a long track record of lebron being spiraled like this i know Anushan, you might remember a game when chris bosh's girlfriend back when he was on the raptors said something to lebron and lebron went ballistic in that game yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that that performance that he had, it reminded me so much of like our meetings with him in the playoffs back when he was the Cav, like just making insane shot one after another. It was just it was beautiful, to be honest, to watch as a fan back when you were Lebronto, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just feel like that engagement between the home crowd and an opposing player is just missing. And, and and this is in the bubble, right? Which had like relatively small gyms, and more importantly, they had high stakes because it's the playoffs. At least after the initial first few games, it was all playoffs. So players were self motivated to you know to, for their legacy's sakes. Here, the arenas are cavernous, and they're either entirely or even when there are a few fans, still mostly empty. And both reporters and players have said that the arenas just feel so dead. Teams have to almost kind of motivate themselves right now. So when the games of no stakes. Or at least I shouldn't say no stakes because, you know, it's a shortened season. So the games matter more than usual. But still, relatively speaking, there are, there are low stakes, at least, in any individual game. And there's no crowd to motivate players. Teams that fall behind early have less reason to rally. And also, as we talked earlier throughout this pod, there's a lot of teams that have had multiple players out with COVID or COVID-related reasons, which has led to one-sided games. Wait, so let, let me take us back for a second. 
you said that home teams have the lowest winning percentage in NBA history, right? That is correct. So you're saying that when I go to Sixers games and I'm screaming at the opponent and telling the ref to throw out guys, it's actually working? I'm actually (laughs) helping my Sixers? 100%. It's not a coincidence that teams with the most raucous home crowds, like places like Portland and Utah and Boston and Philly, yeah, they have great... Yeah, it's difficult to win in those places, right? Because... I don't. I think it's the energy is part of it. I think a huge part of it is the referees not being impacted by home crowds, which tend to really have a huge impact on, on changing games for better or worse. But also just giving energy to your to your guys, right? Like there's a reason that role players play way better than home than on the road because they they really feed off that energy. Only the really the best players in the league, the stars, tend to perform well in any arena. I totally agree with with UAC. Uh, on one hand, there's like very obvious things that factor into the fans being present, and that's just that it gives energy and life to an arena, and that in and of itself can spur a home team to make a, a crazy comeback or you know to maintain their lead when you have your your fans shouting defense. Like those those things really do mean something. And there's also really like arbitrary things like the fan distraction. When you have an opposing player shooting a free throw. You mean like the Eva Longoria comment about yeah. uh, Tony Parker? Yeah. And like, if you guys remember that some guy was holding like a cardboard cutout of his, of his ex-wife, like, I don't know. You have ridiculous things like that. Obviously, you can influence the refs to make a call or, you know, the refs are going to hear it if you make a bad call. And then you just have players who thrive off of fan interaction. They make the crowd go crazy, right? Like you have the Westbrooks, LeBrons, Giannis, like the list can go on and on and on, right? You have players who really get energized from the crowd and they give life to the crowd themselves. And of course, it just gives your home team something to play for. I I guess on the flip side, you can sort of make the argument that while these things are like ingrained in sports, like it really comes down to this sort of old school style of basketball where it's like just you and the other team and your coaches. You can hear the other players talking shit and that in and of itself can feel you. So I guess like the quietness of the arena has its benefits as well, but I don't think anything will outweigh what it means to have a crowd behind you. Anishan, to your point about the playground park style of where there were no crowds, I do think that's why in the bubble, ultimately, like I don't consider it an asterisk title at all because there everyone had stakes to play for and crowd or not, they were playing their ass off, right? Just like they did their whole lives before there were crowds. It's just that when you have a long season when you're traveling in and out of cities and it doesn't feel like every single game matters, when you're already down by 20, it's kind of like, well, should I really kill myself here to get that extra loose ball? Well, a crowd could kind of spur you on in that situation. You feel like you're, you don't want to embarrass them in front of fans, right? That's where that comes in. But I agree with you. I think ultimately, if we do have a playoffs that are in a bubble or whatever, these guys will still motivate themselves and play their asses off regardless. Yeah, and, and to that point, like we, we could have a whole podcast just talking about like the bubble and what it meant to the players, the, the pros and the cons, right? Like the bubble itself was like in a crazy experiment. So like you said, like if there was... A, a, another bubble there could be a, a lot of room for great basketball as we had seen to the season prior well guys news dropped that the nba is negotiating with the players union to potentially have an all-star game this year which actually came as a surprise to me because my understanding was they would name all-stars this year but because of the ongoing covid situation that we wouldn't have an all-star game now i should mention that for us growing up the all-star game was bigger in some ways than even the Super Bowl. And we're, you know, 
in my household, we're big football fans. But the All-Star game is, you know, we would make bets out of it, bet uh, dunk contest, a three-point shootout. We'd bet on the MVP. And it was just like, it's a huge event. You know, it's something we love as basketball fans. So I love having an All-Star game weekend. But I just don't know how feasible this is or even if it's a good idea. What do you guys think? Look, I love the All-Star game, but teams are barely limping through this season. So why add to the difficulty, especially as one of you mentioned earlier that they get exposed to COVID from certain other players. Now, if some of those players are in the same locker room, it's just asking for these stars to all get infected. I think why not just give those guys the weekend off so they can rest and recuperate so that they don't get injured from a truncated season. Yeah, I agree with Oswe. And look, like the All-Star weekend for me is one of my favorite weekends in, in the year. I always have like a tradition where I, I go out to a sports bar with some friends. We just go watch the three-point shooting contest, the slam dunk contest. And then the next day we all gather, go drink at someone's house and then watch the All-Star game. And one, I can't do any of that this year because of lockdown stuff and all the stuff for COVID. So that in and of itself already breaks my heart. But you know, as much as I'd want to see it, it's just not going to happen. And I think Oswe makes all the correct points here, and I, I agree with him totally. Like, why why risk it? It's it's unnecessary. Yeah, the only reason I can think of is the money to, you know, honor whatever deal they have with Turner to have an All-Star game. But it's it's not even like, I know some players have contract incentives to make All-Star teams, but that can also still be taken care of just by naming All-Stars. Like, they can still vote on All-Stars and have that be a ceremonial thing. But to actually have the game, I mean... It's not like the usual thing where you have all these legends and, and fans there. I've heard that they're thinking of doing it in Atlanta because they could have the Turner Studios right there. But, you know, it's not exactly like there's no COVID in Atlanta, right? I mean, the COVID rates are as high as they are ever right now. It just seems like kind of counterproductive when they're putting this front of, of really caring about safety protocols. Like you're not letting people dap each other up after a game, but you're putting all the stars in the league in the same place. I mean, what if what if there's an outbreak there? So now every team star is out. I mean, can you imagine how, what a disaster that would be? That's that's a very good point. See, yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, the most important thing is that we finish the season. So if that means sacrificing the All Star game, I guess that's what it is. While while there are a lot of things we need to like take into consideration for the season regarding safety and protocols, let's let's not forget that so far this has been a pretty good season with a lot of memorable and great performances, right? Like. It, that Colin Sexton performance against the Nets, like that was something that was incredible to watch, right? So again, like while while we can take away a lot of the negatives, let's let's not forget all the positives, right? Like the Knicks are finally doing something in God Woo-hoo! knows how long, right? So yo, forget the Knicks, man. Joel Embiid is finally playing to his potential. He's playing. He's having a Shaq season. He's playing like an MVP. Look, this season. No matter what happens, this is the season that Joel Embiid might have actually finally awoken. It, it only took a global pandemic for him to realize he could play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, guys, I'm not going to let any of this COVID stuff dampen my spirits. The Knicks are good. And we're going to talk about all these teams, all the surprising teams, all the contenders are doing well. The Jazz playing really well out of nowhere. Mike Conley having a resurgence season. The Lakers. LeBron having a age 36 MVP caliber season. We got to talk about all that stuff. The Bucks being both impressive and yet disappointing at the same time. Like always. Like always. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So we'll talk about all that on some of the future pods coming up. But until then, I hope you guys enjoyed this. 
please like, rate, and subscribe uh, to wherever you listen to this podcast. And be sure to tune in next time, guys. Later, everyone. <laughs>